Hello, welcome to this episode of Demystified as we explore home cooking in the modern world. I'm Linda and I'm here with my friend Paul. Hello. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back to you. How yes. have you been? Well, you know. I know. <laughs> I was just asking, but not well. Yeah, uh, I'm all right. I, I take some leave so I can recover from all the work that I've done. That's the only reason I take leave. And unfortunately, you know, didn't work out that way. Didn't really Chef take back. leave. Yeah. Chef back has Chef uh, back. struck again. Yeah. But anyway, I'm upright, so that's a good start. That's positive. Yeah, I'm walking, so that's good. It was 10 days with none of that, so... Well, exactly. That's a great way to spend your holiday. Yeah, mm. there's very little cooking done. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and because of that, I thought I won't... Uh, we won't talk about what we've got planned because at the moment we're just uh, still sorting out a few things mm-hmm. and we're about to really get into redoing our, our first cookbook demystified yeah the final page is being worked on now before it's uploaded again because uh we've sold out of demystified basically yeah i think there's two copies left but we've decided to revamp it which is great so we've now got temperatures with steam percentages and cooking modes cooking mode uh, inserted so we we all know temperature is the main thing but a lot of people ask us about the steam percentages and what it all means yes so we've tried to address that in redoing demystified one which has put a halt on demystified two for a bit but it'll be a better and the mistakes even though we all read it 27 times the recipe mistakes but it's funny how many we've sold yes but how few people have actually there's Asked. only been like i reckon there's only been like maybe three or four people that have actually brought mistakes to our attention now we're not suggesting that anyone who does own the book go through it with a fine tooth comb <laughs> no um, please don't but given we self-published self-edited like you know we really didn't have any professional assistance to have a few mistakes at least shows that it was man-made. Genuine. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, and for those who uh, might be interested, the mis- one of the big mistakes was in the sticky date pudding. We talked about how to make the sauce, but didn't give you the ingredients no. list for the uh, caramel sauce. Yep. That's now been all uh, rectified, as with the calamari. Yep. So that's been taking up a little bit of time. But because I know you haven't been able to cook, I thought I'd ask you two questions that I thought I'd... Uh, about cooking. Okay. One was, um, I, I watched someone the other night on telly, and we've discussed this before, where we've talked about making pumpkin soup where you roast the whole pumpkin, yeah. and which makes it way easier to cut, way easier to get into, a, into your pot to make the, so- the soup out of. But the person who was making it, who was doing, was about to roast the potato, they said for five hours for sort of a whole potato. Pumpkin, you mean? Uh, sorry, pumpkin, yeah. whole pumpkin. But they, before they put it on in the oven, they put it on a tray with baking paper, yeah. covered it in smatterings of olive oil, yeah. and put a whole lot of uh, herbs on top. Yeah. And I, I wondered whether that, and then peeled the skin off yeah. to then take the pumpkin mess out and yeah. put into their pot of yeah. soup. How much flavour would be inferred into the pumpkin itself just from the skin given it was being slow roasted for such a long time okay so you're you're asking if the herbs had any impact yeah okay so what sort of pumpkin was it 
Was it a butternut? A kent, no, it a was. Jap? A, it looked like a uh, jab. Okay, um, and it doesn't really matter. I was just interested to know. No, it was a big round one. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't a butternut. Yeah. Uh, so, and for our American friends, we're talking about what you call squash. We call it pumpkin. They call it squash. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, there you are. There you hmm. are. Uh, so, penetration of what? What herbs? Like we're talking thyme. Thyme and marjoram. Marjoram. Yeah. Mm. With the, those herbs added um, to the... They were just stuck on top. Yeah, I understand that. But oh, yeah. when it came time to pulling no. the pumpkin guts out... And no. They did it get blended? Peeled off. Yeah. The, with the skin the, and Peeled aside. off with the skin. And the skin was peeled off with their hand, which I thought was great. Yeah. To say, we all know how hard pumpkin is to cut. Yeah. We're a bit dangerous. Yeah. But the, the flesh of the pumpkin was then put into the pot and yeah. mixed with the other ingredients yep. and blended. Yep. So the marjoram and thyme... That was completely removed. Okay. None so I would suggest to you that they had no impact at all. Because pumpkin skin is um, not impenetrable, impenetrable, but I would doubt very much that that would have had any impact on the flavour. Because what's actually happening is... is while that pumpkin cooks, and it was probably cooked, and I'm guessing, because I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I would say they probably cooked at about 140 degrees, maybe 150, over a long, long period of time. Um, and what's happening over that period of time is, is because pumpkins are related to cucumbers and they're upwards of 70% water, what, what's happening is... is as that pumpkin gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter on the inside, that water is effectively turning to steam and that will come out of the skin. There may well have been a blister in the skin where it's worked like a steam escape for all of that steam inside the pumpkin. It might not have blistered, but essentially some steam would be coming out of it. While that is coming out of it, there is no way that that thyme and marjoram could get in because steam is being pushed out there while something with that much pressure and it's not a great deal of pressure but i would doubt very much that it would have had any impact now the oil's the interesting one and the only reason that the oil there's two reasons you use oil in that sort of scenario one is you use it so things attach so it's like glue Okay, because if they'd have just put marjoram and thyme on top of a pumpkin without anything on it, it would just fall off, right? They've used the oil there, so the marjoram and thyme stuck to the surface. Now, I'm saying that it didn't have any impact on the flavour in the end, but it stuck on there. So it probably looked nice when it was going in the oven, right? It's this big pumpkin. It did, it looked yeah. great. It looked yeah. like that was going to make a big difference. Yeah, but so that was one reason for the oil but the other reason for the oil and this is why i don't suggest people use good extra virgin olive oil is uh when you use oil on pretty much anything going into an oven and it could be it might not necessarily be oil it could be duck fat if you're doing potatoes or a fat of some sort it could be bacon lard it could be anything right oil attracts heat so it works as an attractant. So it actually helps push the heat towards the thing that you're cooking, right? So if you put a piece of beef, let's just say in the oven um, with nothing on it, no oil, no nothing, yes, it will cook eventually. But if you want to get a little bit of color and crisp 
or a little bit of caramelization on top, you need the oil to do that because the oil attracts the heat. So in the scenario of the oil, the oil makes sense to me because you've got a large pumpkin and you want to concentrate the heat on that pumpkin. So the oil actually makes sense because the oil attracts heat. The thyme and marjoram thing doesn't make sense to me. Now, who knows, right? We could try it, but I doubt very much that even if you put a bunch of thyme, like it's going to make any difference. Now, the funny one for me was I, when you were saying what they did, I actually thought what they would have done, which is very similar to what I do at times, and you've seen me do it, is put it on a bed of salt. Yes. And I was surprised that they didn't do that because that you've got a whole lot of moisture in there now, given they're making a soup, okay, they want to retain some of that moisture because I would imagine that when they removed that pumpkin, they wouldn't have had to add a lot of stock. No, they didn't. Very minimal. No, actually, if they, any. Didn't, they didn't yeah. add any stock. Yeah, okay. Which I was really surprised at. Yeah, well, because pumpkin's because 70% water. They had cooked down some leek. Yep. And some, um, and they'd also put in a bit of onion, carrot, and celery, which I was surprised at. I was not surprised at the leek. Yep. Uh, but I was a little bit surprised at the carrot and celery. Yeah. But I thought that's, I know that's a traditional sort of... Mirepoix. Yes. Very um, good. I didn't say <laughs> that though. But they did that yep. and they put in the flesh of the pumpkin and yep. then pureed it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's really interesting. Well, okay. So in that scenario, like if we're talking about trying to maximize the flavor of what it is that you're making so you're making a pumpkin soup right like i struggle to see the benefit of having onion leek celery carrot whatever it might be right it doesn't that's not helping the pumpkin be more pumpkin you know what i mean you're just actually diluting the flavor and if you were going to do that let's say you wanted to make a roasted of Let's say you wanted to make a vegetable soup and you wanted leek and you wanted onion and you wanted carrot and you wanted celery and you wanted pumpkin. What you're best off doing is actually roasting all of those things together and get some color on them because as we know, color equals flavor. But in the case of a pumpkin soup like that, I actually think what you're best off doing is doing similar to what they did i'd say ditch the herbs because you're not getting any impact from them or you pick them in fresh when you blitz it but literally roast the whole pumpkin scoop it out chuck it in a blender and if you need a little bit of liquid you can add a little bit of stock and you don't have to add it hot a little bit of stock or a little bit of like coconut cream is quite nice so pumpkin and coconut season it up job done like two ingredients literally Three ingredients if you include salt. And you'll have a de- like properly delicious pumpkin soup. But I would suggest roast your pumpkin on a bed of um, rock salt because any excess moisture that does come out just gets captured. And rather than it steaming, it roasts. So you're getting a little bit more of that concentration of flavor. Okay. Well, thank you. I didn't realize that. But you know, I've learned two things in there. Yeah about the oil which i may have known but forgotten but yeah. of course that makes sense yeah and well it's like adding oil to your fry pan right like yeah. if you're if you're pan frying a, a piece of fish you know so like in the scenario of let's say a duck breast a duck breast is a probably a good example i used to cook a mm-hmm. lot of them never add oil i never added oil because what i had such a thick layer of fat in the duck breast because it's quite fatty mm. i actually used 
as it cooked, it rendered out and that became the oil to help transfer the heat because that's all I was using that duck fat for was a heat transfer vehicle, right? But in the case of a piece of fish, very lean as far as fat content, um, even a piece of salmon, which has a higher fat content than most fish, but very lean as far as fat content, you very rarely you're not going to add oil when you're pan frying it. Now grilling it's different and there are various other situations, right? But I'm specifically talking about pan frying. The first thing people hit with a fry pan generally is oil. And what often happens is that everyone gets freaked out about not adding too much. And that's that's one thing that home cooks. And it's the funniest thing when I do demos and I cook all the time, people are like, oh wow, that's quite a bit of oil. Now I'm not drowning it, right? But home cooks never put enough. Really? Ever. Remember that if your pan's up to temperature, you get your oil up to temperature. And I say this often too, is that if we relate cooking with oil to like shallow frying, deep frying, pan frying, right? Let's just put those three things together. If your pan's up to temperature, your oil's up to temperature. And all there's not that many foods that act like sponges. And that's what we all think it's going to do is absorb yeah, the oil now, and make it unhealthy. Exactly yeah. right. Like, so eggplant acts like a sponge, zucchini to a degree, mushrooms do, but there's not many. So a piece of fish, right, is not necessarily going to act like a sponge. But if you want to get really good crispy skin, right, you need a volume of oil. If you want to get really nice even color on a steak, you need a volume of oil. And it's not that you're consuming it, it's you're using it as a vehicle to get color. Because a pan by itself, yes, it will eventually, but it won't as effectively. It doesn't transfer the heat as well. The oil is just there as a vehicle to help you get to that end result. So I always find that people never add enough oil, ever. They're always like, oh, just give it a drizzle. No, 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 no. No, give it a really good slug of oil. Make sure it's up to temperature. And it's the same when you're shallow frying or deep frying. While often those cooking methods are thought of as unhealthy, they're actually not as long as your oil's at the right temperature. If you think mm. about a piece of fish that's battered, like fish, you go to yeah. the fish and chip yes. shop, right? You yeah. see them in the massive deep fries and they're swimming in a swimming pool of oil, right? If that oil is at the right temperature, and generally the right temperature is anywhere between 175 and 185 degrees Celsius, that's really hot, right? And you're, you've got something battered, which is like generally a reasonably thick, a bit thicker than thickened cream or pouring cream consistency. Once it hits that surface, as long as it's been prepared properly, all it is is a vehicle for heat. That's all it is. Because I think we do all worry about how much of that we're going to be. Yeah, and the problem with, and everyone's had like a greasy schnitzel and bad yeah. fish and chips that are dripping in oil. Yeah. Now, quite often when you look at it, right, on the surface, you're like, and you can feel it in your hands, yeah, you, you see can. it, like, and it's unappealing and you're like, Bleh. so two things occur. There are two reasons why that happened. Reason number one is because um, the oil wasn't, at the right temperature to start with. And you've got to remember when you shallow fry, deep fry, pan fry, 
the temperature drops significantly as soon as you add volume. So when you add your piece of fish to the pan, the temperature drops significantly. Whether it's pan frying a piece of salmon or deep frying a piece of fish in batter, the temperature of the oil actually, what actually happens is it rises very quickly. So it may rise by 20 or 30 degrees, but then just as fast it will drop by about 50. So if your oil's at 180 degrees, what often happens, and let's say we're deep frying, what often happens is we want to do two pieces of fish and we're talking, you know, 120, 130 gram portions. You drop the fish in, the oil will rise up very quickly because what's happening is, is that you are getting steam escaping from the batter because it's water-based as well. And that lifts up the temperature. And that's where you hear the sound, right? So you hear yeah, the, the crackle, splattering. the yeah. splattering, right? Yeah. So the temperature will rise up dramatically by about... 20 to 30, maybe even 40 degrees, but then just, to, and it won't hold there because what happens is, is it then comes back to settling down and it will actually dip way below what your set temp is or what your set temp you want to be is. So the idea being, if you're trying to deep fry at home, let's say in a pot, the idea being is that people have found that 180 degrees Celsius or 170 to 180 degrees Celsius is about good because what you're actually cooking at is sometimes about 160, 165. The best way to deep fry or shallow fry or even pan fry at home is get everything up to temperature, in the case, a pot of oil, 180 mm -hmm. degrees. Once it's up to temperature and holding temperature, when you add volume, turn the heat up and you turn it up very briefly, what you're looking for is a much more linear recovery, something that doesn't dip as far, and a much more linear recovery and evenness of temperature, and we talk about this with ovens all the time, will give you a better end result and seals. So it seals the outer casing of the batter in the case of fish and chips. It seals the skin. And because in the case of pan-fried piece of fish, it doesn't work like a sponge, a batter can. So. The recovery time is the key to deep frying, shallow frying, pan frying. But the other factor is, is that old oil, and we've all experienced and seen it, you see it in a fish and chip shop, right? So good vegetable oils, and it could be a rice bran oil, grapeseed oil, anything like that. Generally, while they might have a yellowish tinge to them, quite often they're clear, right? They almost could be as clear as water. Good yeah. ones, right? Yeah. Old oil is yeah, colored. you can tell. And you can, t and you can smell it too, right? Yes. And the reason that old oil is bad is because it loses its uh, like thermo properties for it to recover and to be able to maintain temperature. And it's got a whole lot of stuff mixed in there, right, over periods mm -hmm. of use. So yeah. water... You know, all sorts yeah, of all that else. stuff that you've been deep frying in there previously, yeah, which is why you shouldn't really recycle oil more than once. So I do, I do deep frying at home. Absolutely, it's a great cooking method. It's a really, really good cooking method, but it's only good if your pan's up to temp, your oil's up to temp, and you've got a quick recovery. That's the trick. But in the case of pan frying, going back to our original thing. Don't be scared of adding oil and just think of it as a vehicle to get temperature into the item that you're cooking. So given given just that last little bit, would you always have your 
temperature probe, your temperature uh, little thermometer that you can dip into the oil to see. For deep frying, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Shallow frying, you... No, well, you don't need it. Yeah. But for oil, I'm always a bit nervous so, deep frying at home. Yeah, so a, if you don't have a temperature probe, a good one is get a wooden spoon, turn it upside down, and stick the handle in the middle of the pot, about halfway down through the oil. Now, you don't need... You know, like you and Doug are just cooking for you and Doug, right? So you don't need a volume of oil. But the thing with deep frying is, is what you actually need is a wide pan right and because you've got a wide pan you actually do need a lot of oil yes right so don't try not to tend not to deep fry in something that is uh thin in diameter um and too deep so something that is wider and has a little bit less depth is better because you need room for the items that you're deep frying to move okay because movement happens naturally when you're cooking in a liquid, whether it be poaching, whatever. Um, so something that's shallow but wide is a good choice for deep frying. Now you will need a volume of oil, but the best way to test is stick a wooden spoon in the middle of it. And if the wooden spoon bubbles, generally your oil is at the right temperature. Alternatively, what you can do, I've seen Maggie Beer do this a lot. She just tears off a piece of bread, throws it in, just a corner of bread, throws it in. And if it colors up, in about what she thinks is reasonable time. If your oil gets too hot, and that can happen very easily, um, don't cook in it. Turn the heat off and add some more oil, which will bring the temperature back down and just give it a chance to settle. If your oil isn't hot enough and you start to cook, that's where you get soggy, oily food. Yeah, okay. Right? So, a good home test is a wooden spoon. Make sure it gets lots of little bubbles coming off the wooden spoon because wood has got water in it. Okay, so that's that's why it bubbles. That's why it bubbles. So that's a good way to test. But a thermometer is obviously the best. Um, and just keep an eye on it. And when you're heating your oil, don't just go full bore. Okay, because it doesn't give it a chance to heat evenly, right? Because especially it depends on what you're working on. If you're working on induction, it works a little bit better. But working on gas, you've got a concentrated heat source mm. in the middle of what is a large diameter fry pan or pot. Um, so something that like a medium high heat is better rather than just go crank it up and go, I need to get this oil up to temperature quickly. You want a, a nice gradual even rise to temperature and then add your items, then crank it up to get that recovery a little bit more linear than dipping too much. And that's the way to pan fry, right. deep fry, shallow fry. Well, thank you very much. No, no, I know we've talked about this before, yeah. particularly during you know the last couple of years when we were doing a lot more home cooking. Mm. But I love the idea of that pumpkin, you know, because if you have a any sort of small garden, pumpkin's one of those things which makes you feel like you're a great gardener. Yeah. But when you've got a lot of them, you can only give them away so often before everyone starts refusing to open the door to you because they're scared you're going to give them another pumpkin. Yeah. And that's a great way of using it. But I might just mention one more thing and this is i know it's a favorite of yours that we did a long time ago but we've done a lot of crumb foods in the combi steam oven yes we yeah? have yeah now over experience what we know like we've done arancini scotch eggs crumbed fish like yeah. all sorts of stuff right mm. now 
the good thing about that is that yes it works well in a combi steam oven it's pretty close to what you could get. not exactly deep fried but reasonably close you can still get some nice color and nice crisp but every single one of those crumbed foods i actually use spray oil so i coat the surface with oil yes now what i'm mm. what we're doing there is actually we're relying on that oil to help us give that crunch and color and remember we're adding steam to this so we're cooking them on a combination function of yeah. sorts and there's steam going in and all we're doing is using that steam as a vehicle as well as the oil to speed up the process and add temperature that's all we're doing well that's one of my favorite things in yeah. fact on us talking to uh um, so when you do your, if you've got a combi steam oven, when you do your schnitzels, do them in your combi steam oven. Yeah, but, but it, all, yes, and knowing good technique outside of your combi steam oven for deep frying, shallow frying, pan frying is still good. I ran into somebody on the weekend who is a friend of a friend, the lovely Candy, and she has had a Vizel combi combi oven. I think one, maybe two, for a, a couple of years and is too afraid to really use it has tried the preset the same stories we hear yeah. same things and i suggested that she try she loves fish and she wanted to cook it better and i suggested the crumb and i said if garfish isn't your thing try flathead tails try Whiting. whiting yeah. and make it with the the sauce and it is and it's so easy because i've done that when we've had people over as an entree yeah. and putting them into the combi steam oven getting them all filleted, you know, getting them all crumbed beforehand, yep. a light spray, in they go, yep. the bagnacuda is made up, and it's a great little entree, and it's always impressive, and it's really quick. But the only way that that works, and that crumbing mm. process works, is because of the oil spray. Yep. You remove the oil spray, no matter how good your oven is, no matter how hot it gets, it will not colour and crisp up as evenly. So in that scenario, we're doing exactly the same thing as what I've just been talking about, is we're using the oil as a vehicle to add temperature. And we're adding temperature to the crumb to give us a crisp result. That's all yeah. we're doing. But we're also using steam because we know steam's really effective as a thermal conductor. So it, it adds, it's eight times more thermally efficient than dry heat by itself. So when we use dry heat, steam, and spray, oil spray, in the scenario of cooking, crumbing something and doing it in your combi steam ovens, we're adding three things which we can use to get a nice crispy end result. And that's why it's a lot quicker. And that's why it works. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thank you. No, thank you Often for answering that. as we do. No, no, but that's, I always learn, I always feel like I learn a lot. So I'm hoping that, uh, that helps home cooks out there. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Paul. Don't be scared until, of deep frying. And until next time, see you later. See ya. Thanks for listening to this podcast as we explore home cooking in a modern world. We'd love you to subscribe. And for more information, please go to our website, cookingwithsteam.com. Mm-hmm.